0: You're listening to the Lifetree Church Sermon of the Week. We pray that as you hear this word, you would be encouraged and inspired as you pursue Jesus in your everyday life.
1: Good morning. I'm going to be asking you to join in a little bit of community collaboration at times this morning. I am I was ready for you to preach, Caleb. We were rocking there. It was good. One of my nephews is getting baptized this morning in another town, and I've seen him growing in his faith and being discipled by others, and so hearing a baptism announcement coming up here in two weeks, ooh, that's exciting. I'm going to say something, one sentence, I'm going to ask you to say it with me after I've said it once. Feasting on God's presence is my best quest for identity. Let's say it together. Feasting on God's presence is my best quest for identity. We've been talking for weeks about identity and what it means to be in Christ and to be known by him, to be image bearers, to be reflectors. We're not the light, but we bounce a whole lot of light when God's at work in our lives. And that's what we were talking about last Sunday and we started to jump into the book of Exodus and look specifically at the journey of Moses. We wanna set the stage this morning, a little bit of review, a little bit of charging forward. But in Exodus chapter four, Aaron and Moses get to introduce themselves to the elders of Israel. We're gonna be reading some scriptures from Exodus in a moment. And you gotta remember at this stage in Moses' life and his journey where he was at. Now if you go back in time in the book of Genesis and leading into Exodus, Israel as a nation from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob had become 12 brothers. Joseph who became prominently known in the latter chapters of the book of Genesis. He had dreams, and everyone said, that is not your identity. You're just really messed up in the head. And those dreams looked completely unrealistic because his dreams were that his father and his family would be bowing down to him. His identity was clear in his mind. There was no one else sharing that sense of his identity. They didn't see him as God saw him. And until we see people as God sees them, we can't speak to them as we should speak to them. But Joseph learned a lot. And he was actually in places like prison and wrongfully accused and lowly servant roles. And it was all grooming him to be in charge of the nation and also, that is Egypt, and also rescuing his family of 11 brothers and a household. And when we get into the book of Exodus, over 400 years has passed. And the nation of Israel is still very weakly, almost on fumes, running on the promises delivered to their forefathers. See, they'd been told through Abraham at first, who with his wife Sarah was barren, that they'd have a child, and they did. And they've become this nation that's numbering in the millions, but they'd also been promised a land flowing with milk and honey, and now for over four centuries, as they become more populous, they've become more enslaved. The norm for every Israelite is enslavement. But their heritage and their identity is freedom and promised land. So there's this massive dissonance between their lived experience day to day and their promised experience, which is their true identity. Moses, we saw last week, moved wonderfully from no way am I taking this assignment to show me more of your glory and actually radiating God's goodness. Others didn't come along quite so well in the process. We're going to talk about that this morning. We have to realize that The leaders of Israel, when Moses and Aaron come to them and say, hey guys, God's met us, this is the plan, we're getting out of here. These were leaders, they're called elders in the book of Exodus, who are bereft of living in a state of promises fulfilled. We have no record of what had happened in those 400 plus years, but these are people, as we referenced Moses last week, who had been in every sense kicked in the identity. They had no sense of who they were in a spiritual sense. They looked at their physical situation and declared this is who we are, we're slaves. And without a complete transformation of Jesus Christ in our lives, we can remain stuck there for a life, for generations as a family. But the change always starts with an individual who's willing to get hungry and feast in God's presence and say it's changing. Now we're going to read a little bit, Exodus 4, 29 to 31, and then I'm going to ask for some of your input to recall what God does between this intro and the point at which Moses starts to go up Sinai, which is not many months in the journey of Israel, but it's enormous in terms of their positioning. So Exodus 4:29, Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people. And they believed. And when they heard the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, remember, 400 years of crying out, they bowed down and worshiped. Now, I want you to just try to get a grasp of if it was your great, 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 great grandfathers enslaved and then your great-great-great-grandfathers, and then your great-great-grandfathers, and then your great-grandfather, and then your grandfather, and then it's you. And then someone comes along and says, you've been listened to. You'd be like, well, we've all been crying out, okay, <laughs> prove it, right? And, and Moses and Aaron had a few signs, right? The staff could become a snake, the hand could go in the coat and come out leprous and go back in and be healed, and they were like... Okay, it looks like there's some power going with the promises, which is what we need. We need power. We need to be, li- be delivered from a mighty armory that enslaves us. But my sense is, as I note, the record shows us nothing. These people had not been living in promises. Now, in a moment, we're going to read from Exodus 24, where things have shifted a lot. But let's stay there for a moment. They're in Egypt. Moses and Aaron have said, this is where things are heading. Their hopes... are are coming up. They're starting to believe that God's a promise keeper. They've been listened to. And by the time we get to Mount Sinai, where we read next, if you know scripture, you know a lot of things happen. I just would like popcorn comments out. What does God do between now, when they bow down and worship, and Mount Sinai after they are in the wilderness and Moses is about to get the tablets on the mountain? What are some things God does? It doesn't have to be chronological. What does God do for them in their community? What does he do to deliver them? What are some of the instances? He feeds them. There's manna. There's quail. He parts the Red Sea. And in the process, what happens? Wipes out the entire Egyptian army. Now, people said deliver them, but if you don't know the Bible super well, you might not know all the plagues that happened that came to the deliver them part, right? The firstborn son of every Egyptian household was slain by the angel of the Lord passing over the nation, but not a single person in Israel was harmed. Okay, so there's a lot. There's water that has come out of rocks. There's multiple millions of people. When they said, we're tired of just bread, God gave them all meat. So the extent, the magnitude, and the consistency of every day something new in this faith journey, pardon me, Hallelujah. The, 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 the amazing unpredictability in this new faith journey, they've gone from 400 years of stagnation to every day waking up and going, okay, we'll start out with bread that comes down from heaven overnight while we sleep, and then we'll go forward. And there'll be, no one said it yet, I don't think, a cloud, all right, all day long, and then fire all night long. There will always be a visible presence of God in our midst. Like these people have had their lives changed. Now, We mostly think of Moses as the guy who gets to do the mountaintops, right? But maybe you've missed this little scripture text that we're going to read here. Exodus 24, 9 to 11. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders. So how many of them are there? 74 people. They saw the... It says they went up. So this is Mount Sinai. They went up. They saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of, depending on your translation. I don't know what lapis lazuli is, but my Bible also says sapphires. A pavement of sapphires. God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and what did they do? They ate and drank. Okay, so these are the same elders who Moses and Aaron had come to just weeks or months earlier and said, God's listened, he's concerned, he sees your misery, he's going to deliver you, and he completely has. Now they're on a mountain on sapphire pavement, and God is like, would you like more to drink? (laughs) Like, have the promises been fulfilled? Absolutely, but you know what's going to happen? They're going to completely crash and burn within the same 40-day window that Moses will stay on the mountain. Things will go completely sideways as badly for the nation of Israel as it did for Egypt in the Red Sea when the wheels came off their chariots. It's going to be a train wreck, spiritually speaking. And what I want to get us to is to realize that while we have a God who never unfinishes his promises, he always comes through. He's always ready to reveal, I believe. And we feast in the best way possible in his presence, in our best quest for identity, all the miracles all the promise keeping, even all the revelation of God to us is not enough. And we're going to talk this morning about what we can do, what our role, what our response is to the revelation of God. We touched on it extensively last week and we'll review that a bit and we'll go forward further. Because look what happens after the meal that the 74 have on the sapphire pavement where they eat and drink we're looking at exodus 32 i think it ends up being two slides of text when the people saw that moses was so long in coming down so the meal has ended moses continues up the mountain the 73 others go down the mountain and it's 40 days in total that moses is up there right it's a long time to be without your leader When the people saw Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. And I want to pause there. So strip yourself of all your gold jewelry. If you have a Bible in front of you, flip back to Exodus 11 and look where most of their gold jewelry came from. Do you remember? It came when they left Egypt and they were told ahead of time that when they left Egypt, they would be given favor with the Egyptians and not only would they leave the night that all the Egyptian firstborn were slain, they would go to every Egyptian household and say, give me all your valuables. They verbally plundered and received everything wealth-wise of Egypt. They carried it out of Egypt while God delivered them. And now they say, we don't know where God or Moses are. And the very things they're holding that are symbols of their freedom, that were held onto by their captors, now their appointed priest melts it down, makes an idol, and says, this is who saved you. The actual physical items they took from Egypt, the night they became free, they're now molding into a god. Verse 3, so all the people took off their earrings, brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him, made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, at this very time, Moses is on the top of the mountain getting the commandments. He's getting the covenant written down of how they're to live as a nation of God's people free in their identity. 74 of them have just had a meal in God's presence, and this is how out of hand it is. So the next day... The people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. I just want you to realize here, revelation wasn't enough. Revelation wasn't enough. It is wonderful to be in the presence of God. It is amazing to see him answer our prayers and deliver us. And this is how we get to know him. But there's something in all covenants that's on us. So it's not just a one way banquet where God serves us and we go, Wow, now we're new people. There's something after God has served us and revealed Himself to us that's that's our opportunity, that's our privilege. This struck me yesterday when Caleb and I were talking and praying, and I just want to ask you, if you were to come into your morning, start of a new day, and let's pretend that the usual encumbrances aren't there. If little kids and diapers normally are part of your everyday, let's say they're not. If sometimes too few zeros on your bank account is an issue, it's not. And you wake up and someone says, you know, just grab a pen of paper. No, never mind. I'll write it down for you. What are the five things you most want to do today? We'll do them. Who puts down in their top five, I want to spend time with God? Because this right here is where we get to the heart of our identity. Does feasting in God's presence as my best quest for identity actually reflect my appetite, my desire? I want to be with him. If you could take away all the encumbrances and all the hindrances, would you run to him? Would you say, I get all day I get to be with you for you to reveal more of you, and I get to know you better, and in the process, I become clearer on who I am. This hadn't been cultivated in these elders' lives yet. And what we see time and again in their journey in the book of Exodus and beyond is that when pressure comes, when challenges come, they cry out, right? And they don't cry out and say, God, you are awesome. We're so looking forward to your next manifestation to deliver us. Do you know what they usually cry out? Could we please return? Could we please return to Egypt? We want to be slaves again. We want the same food as when we were enslaved. We want to be in the same place as when we were enslaved. We liked it there. It was predictable. This faith journey where we don't know how God's going to show himself, it's freaking us out. And he keeps feeding us. And, and tending our needs, and our clothes don't wear out, and we're not sick, and our enemies are vanquished, and there's cloud and there's fire. But c- can we just go back to Egypt? Think about it, guys. There's something of that in the heart of every person who doesn't got, put him on the top of their list that's actually craving going back to the place where we never even knew who we were. It was so familiar to be a slave, we couldn't even say we were slaves. It was so normalized, they didn't even see it as an aberrant in their identity. And so things shake up a little bit. You've heard of fight and flight. It's what every person does to run back to enslavement when things are tough because they don't know who God is in their life. Now, we do know, and we talked last week that in Exodus 34, Moses coming down off the mountain was so radiating the glory of God. It was physically visible. This guy, pre-electricity, was glowing. So much so, they weren't going, wow, I want to touch it. Your glory, you're walking. No, they were like, could you cover that up, please? That's just too many watts. And so he would go in and be in the tabernacle with God uncovered. And when he came out to be with people who were overwhelmed by the glory of God physically animating from him, he put a cover over his face. And reflecting, no pun intended, on that, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3 We Christians have no veil over our faces, we can be mirrors that brightly reflect the glory of the Lord. And as the spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like him. This is the role of being an image bearer. We get to reflect the light of the glory of God in us, and it comes off of us. So he reveals himself to me and to you, and we in turn reflect him to others. This last week, I get to this point as I'm preparing to speak, where I know there's a certain amount of text on paper when it's printed out that's manageable. And then there's a certain point where you start scrolling your monitor and it's just like, okay, this is a month of Sundays. I'm gonna have to figure this out. I got to that point and I was going on my evening walk and I was praying. I said, Lord, I don't know what to do. You've given me enough to preach for 100 hours and I've got not that many minutes. Can you make sense of it for me? I don't know where each person's at. I don't know where our hearts are. I don't know what people are hungering for, but you do. You have this ability to take one word from my mouth and apply it a thousand different ways to people's situations and their needs. So I need you to show me. That was my prayer. I was out loud. I got into bed. And he just started to pour out over me. So much goodness and so much clarity. And I was so tired at the close of my day, I added another prayer. I said, Okay, you are answering, but the timing's a bit off because I'm really tired. <laughs> I can't get back to my computer now and start editing and moving stuff around. Can you be gracious to me and let me sleep and in the morning hit it with me again? Because usually by morning I forget everything I've dreamed at night. I don't know if you go brain dead while you sleep. I can have the most awesome dreams in the middle of the night. I'll wake up, go to the bathroom next morning. I think I had a dream last night. I can't remember. So that was my prayer. Can you just patiently wait? I got up in the morning, an amazing sleep. The thought I'd fallen asleep with was the same thought I woke up with. And I just went, I was just like, oh, this is great. This is epic. And I went on my morning walk, and I was just like, Lord, this is so cool. And I was just like, okay, let me get this right. Let's start talking about what you did and how you showed up to me personally so that I can take advantage of this opportunity that we have in our relationship together. You hear. You're a hearing God. You care about my little situation so much that you get right in there with me where I am. You speak. When I ask for a specific word, you specifically speak to my situation. You want to see me succeed so that you get more honor and you get more glory and you look better than you already do. You want that for me. You want to use me because what I, what I felt more than ever was... You want this to work. You want your word to be powerful and to change lives and to affect people's situations. You're trustworthy to answer. That was off one little event over the course of 12 hours. I came out with a week's worth of praise opportunities because God was real to me in specific ways. Guys, that's feasting on his presence in my quest for my identity. your best way forward in life is to tell him what you need and say, I'm reliant on you. Reveal yourself to me right where I'm at. Because when he reveals himself to you where you're at, you've got testimony. Can you imagine how difficult it is for a person in illness to pray for healing? And how wonderfully liberating it is for a person who's been healed by the great healer to pray with confidence for someone else to be healed? because your lived experience of what God's done for you is this amazing opportunity to move forward in faith and in confidence. God meets us where we are. Our point of need becomes God's point of revelation. Can you say, my point of need becomes God's point of revelation? Right? So wherever you're at right now, if you say to him, I need this of you because you're a God who provides my needs and I'm looking to you, I have nowhere else to look. He meets you there and he listens and he hears and he responds and you've got testimony. He's revealed himself to you practically and personally. We talked last week about kind of a four-step approach to getting your identity pulled together. And it starts out very fundamentally rudimentary. It's kind of like I called it your resume and your feelings. It's what I'm doing and where my emotions are at. That's the worst place to be from an identity perspective, but it's usually where we start. You have some victories? (laughs) I am awesome. You have a major defeat? (gasps) I suck. And you can be just riding this crazy wave of experiences and emotions based on the flavor of the week or the day in your life. And it's a huge step forward in your personal growth to move from what do I do to who am I becoming? It allows you to realize you're on a journey, that you're going from actions to character development. And it's a wonderful way to set goals and aspirations in our own lives. Whether we believe in Jesus or not, it acknowledges that there is work to be done in our lives. When we have a newfound faith in Jesus, we get to brag about him rather than ourselves. We move to his resume rather than ours. So we graduate to what has God been doing in our life. And this is exciting until you're 400 years in slavery. And it seems like God's not doing anything. And with the resume being so lean, we go back to a weak identity. And so the place we're wanting to get to where these elders of Israel hadn't yet progressed was who's God to me? From what I do, to who I'm becoming, to what God does, to who God is. And the beautiful thing is that when the book of Exodus gets rolling and the burning bush experience for Moses happens, that's where God starts the whole experience. I'm here to tell you who I am. Everything you're going to feel unable to do, the response is, who's God? Not not what, what do you have for skills? Let's never confuse that our ability determines what we'll get to do, (laughs) okay? Our ability never determines what we get to do. It's our willingness to rely on God, okay? We're going to talk in a moment about shedding some identity, maybe some stories, some descriptors of ourselves that we hold on to or that others hold on to of us, that if we don't shed them, we can't really be locked in on who God sees us as because we're kind of cluttered or encumbered with a bunch of trappings that aren't about God. The, the picture that came to me this last week was when young David shows up to offer some cheese to the commanders of his brothers in the war against the Philistines and ends up saying, what, there's a giant to be killed? I'm in. And he's a young punk as everyone sees him. They don't see his true identity. They didn't on the day of his anointing. They don't now on the battlefield. His brothers are like, what? King Saul is like, you're a young kid. King Saul has one idea as a strategy. Come into my war tent. I'll give you all my armor. So he takes this lean, very light in terms of how he enters battle. David is a a lightly dressed warrior. He he dresses like a shepherd because that's what he is. And when he's previously killed bears and lions, which he says is part of his resume, and it's truly, he says, God's resume, Uh, Saul says, no, no, we'll, we'll give you a king's identity. We'll put on all sorts of armor and plating and protection. And all that David gets out of his like, I can't move. This isn't who I am. He tosses off all the armor. He goes out, he's got one more naysayer. It's Goliath himself. Not just his brothers, not just Saul, but even Goliath. Like, what, am I a dog? You're sending little boys after me? No one believes who he is except for him. But he knew precisely who he was. And he did a God-sized job because he had a God. But he he had to let go of, he had to shed all the identities everyone else was saddling him with. I had someone chatting with me this week and they said, you know me, I'm grumpy. I was like, you want to live with that? You want to live with, you know me? Like, if you, if you really know me, what you're low, I'm grumpy. And we might say it tongue-in-cheek, but there may be some truth in our own hearts that believes a whole lot about us as people and how we see others whom we're called to see and speak to as God does that needs to be shed. Let's remember, feasting on God's presence is my best quest for identity. One person shared with me this week that it kind of snuck up on them as their health had declined. They said, my identity has become my illness. You get up in the morning and you don't feel good, and it's a struggle to stay well. And you used to be a certain way and you're not anymore and people start to relate to you around your illness rather than your identity. And over time it creeps in and time passes and that actually starts to become your safe place. You know me, I'm sick. I'm a captive, I'm a slave. I like to please other people. I never feel quite myself. Someone else told me this week that on a certain significant event in their life, their aunts gathered around them and said, this is what's expected of you now. And that stuck with them for life. This is what's expected of you now. This is your new identity, we're telling you. And it wasn't God's identity for the person. I met a friend a couple weeks ago in a grocery store parking lot. I had known her years ago. She's at this crazy, beautiful spot with Jesus. And I said, what's taken place? I wanted to know. What's been going on in your life since I last saw you? Because her identity was not what it is now. I could tell quickly. She said it was so hard for me to figure it out. But it came down to one thing. Because as I'd known her, she was depressed every day and always struggling with suicidal thoughts. Her very identity was, I feel terrible. Life is miserable. I should probably end it. You know what shifted it all? She ended up in a person's office who was counseling her. And they said, until you forgive your mother, there will be no way forward in your life. And they dealt once and for all with bitterness in their life. They forgave that person from the heart. And then the part that really blew them away because they thought the meeting was over, that person advised them, now tear up the paper on which you wrote everything you're forgiving them for. It's done. It's over. You walk out of here, you let her go. And she said it was like snapping fingers in the heavenly realms. The depression lifted. The suicide quit. She's a new person. She's who she really is in Jesus And it may or may not be in a moment or in the snap of the fingers, but if we don't get into feasting on God's presence, he's a forgiving God. When we know him as a forgiving God, then our identity in him is we're forgivers. Doesn't matter what people have been giving us, we forgive them. We start to move in faith. We start to live according to the identity of this God in whose presence we feast. So I'm going to give a little bit of community opportunity here. And you can choose what's appropriate, what's vulnerable, what's too vulnerable. What do you need to shed? Might just be a phrase. Might just be a word. Might just be a construct you've been holding on to that you know, that's got to go. And don't suggest what for your wife next to you needs to be shed. (laughs) Just you. What needs to go? Anybody? Feeling responsible, yep. God's super responsible. He'll look after that. We can shed that. I'm not enough seems to be one of the most successful false identities. I don't have enough. I'm not good enough. They won't accept me. Don't even bother trying. That is so not the people of God's posture or identity, right? So whatever your identity is to be, the opposite of that is where Satan is happiest, right? Making the right decision. Making the right decision. It's not up to us. No. He's a father and he's got the heart of a mother and he loves our spouse and he loves our kids and he loves our grandkids more than we ever could. And if we're able to let him do the loving that he's perfectly good at, we can enjoy feasting in his presence and say, Lord, you do my family for me, please. You do my family for me. I don't know how to be everything that I'm supposed to be. But you're enough. Fear of failure. Loving yourself. Let it go, guys. What else? Yeah. Isn't it great that God can do everything? And so he can use anyone to do it? You you get to be the one when he chooses us. Thank you, Lord. Okay, we're just going to let that go. There might be more that comes to you over the week. It's beautiful to do it in community, to journal it and write it down, so that as you form identity statements like we talked about last week, how God sees you, how you speak to yourself, how you see others, how you speak to them, you get rid of all the baggage, like Saul's armor that doesn't belong on an agile little warrior to go out and do giant's business. You just put on what God wants you to have on. You just take the stones that he gives you for his sling and you're good to go. When we suppress the revelation of God, we deny his true identity. So really, if you don't pray for healing, when you see someone who's sick, you're saying, my God's not a healer. If you see an opportunity, which I'll call a need, an opportunity for God to show off his provision, and you don't ask him to provide, you're denying that he's a provider. If you've asked Jesus to forgive you, and you sit there and go, I'm not good enough in God's eyes. You obviously don't believe that Jesus was a righteous and sufficient sacrifice for your sins. So you're suppressing his true identity. And you know what? If we're doing that, if we're caught in that space, we'll always be unaware of our true identity because we're reflectors. We're reflectors of who he is. But if you don't see him clearly, then the light's not going to be bouncing off you. Right? So a little shine it up, shine it up, get those reflectors working. Paul explains this beautifully in Romans chapter one and two. He talks about what theologians just call general revelation. You just got to look around when the sun's shining today and you see everything around you go, this is God, this new moon we've had this week and a, and a sky full of stars. I walk out there and I'm just like, you pulled this all together. You did all this. And someone's saying, this is chance. There's not even intelligence behind all this. And Paul says in Romans 1 and 2, if people are seeing that and they're denying God and his true identity, he gives them over to depravity. They can't even think right. They get into an identity crisis. You can't get yourself out of an identity crisis without getting the right view of God. Because if you can't see him right, you can't see you right. There's a couple ditches there, if we don't get that correct. We'll either overshoot our mark, if we haven't recognized God for who he is, we'll declare ourselves divine, or we'll undershoot, when Psalm 8 says, he made us a little lower than the angels, it's like, whoa, this is amazing how he made us. We'll forever be struggling with a grasp on our true potential, because we don't believe we're made in his image. We gotta land where God lands with us. We gotta tell ourselves how God sees us. We're not divine, but we're reflecting the divine. So when you think about those Hebrew elders who can have a feast in the presence of God on sapphire pavement and end up making an idol that they worship out of the gold jewelry that they got off of their former captors and they get it that wrong. I feel compelled to share with you Hebrews eleven six. Everyone who comes to God must believe that he exists. I don't think they were questioning that. And that he rewards those who earnestly or diligently seek him. There's a component in here of diet, which is why I chose the word feast. There's a component in here of rhythm, of regularity. There's a component of longing, like on my top five, God's at the top. That we're hungry for God, that we're earnestly seeking him, that we're diligently daily going after him, that we want him, his presence, and understanding him better more than anything else because he is life itself. It requires discipline to appropriate the revelations of God so they become personal promises which shape our identity. I won't ask you to repeat that, but I will read it again. It requires discipline to appropriate the revelations of God so they become personal promises which shape our identity. So the prayer for our lives in this type of setting with this teaching would be, show me how to hold on and to grasp the revelation you've given me. When you do something in my life, don't let it be wasted on me. Let it be the valuable currency of life that it should be, that it becomes another dimension. You might have a one-dimensional God, and he's a billion dimensions. So the journey every day, this feasting in his presence is, Lord, show me more aspects of your wonder and your beauty and your goodness and your ability to fulfill every promise you've ever given me. The more I reflect on God's character, the more I will reflect God's character. You'll never run out. This is bigger than any Vegas buffet. <laughs> this is everything you can imagine. And then at times at the exponential factor that you can't even grasp. You're never going to get tired going, oh, well, I got God figured out this week. Right? <laughs> it's endless. It's this feast that never quits. There's more of him all the time. It's a rushing rushing river that never runs dry. It doesn't have a dry season because he's always enough and he's always more than you need. And so when you're feasting in his presence, there's more of him. There's a better understanding of who you are in his presence. So as we receive revelation and experience his provision, our knowledge of God is nurtured and he becomes mega multidimensional. I just want to speak One last line, and then I'm going to ask Caleb to come up and close us off where we talk out loud about declaring God in our lives. Every place in your life and in my life where you can point to a struggle, that's your opportunity for understanding your identity more than you ever did before. Because every place you've got a blockage, an obstacle, a challenge, a sticking point. This is where you and I get to go to God and say, Lord, show off, show up, do something. I don't know what to do, but that's your job. I don't have to figure it out. Little secret if you don't get it already from scripture, usually his timing's different than your preference. This is usually the sticking point. It's that it's 430 years for the promise that he will fulfill to be fulfilled. My question always is, what could they have done differently or better in the 430 years? And I'm not sure what the answer is. But I don't really want to be the reason why there's a, where there's a slowing of God's power and his release and his promises fulfilled. So embrace the challenges and the struggles and say, oh, I get to discover God in a new way because I don't have a clue what to do. Yes! Show me, Lord, so that I can understand you better and reflect you better. We're going to wrap up with declarations of who God is. And Caleb's really good at leading us in this, so I'm going to let him finish off and lead us. Thank you, Stacy.
0: Like, like, like I said at the beginning, we are grateful for the gift of God that is in Stacy for our community, right? So here's what we're going to do, just like Stacy said. We are going to confess who God is, what he's like, who he says he is, who he's shown himself to be. You guys remember two weeks ago, Kim asked us the question at the end of the service, who does God say you are? Today I want to ask you, who does God say he is? Who does God say He is? Because something starts to happen when you start to say out loud who God says He is, it does something in you. As we behold His glory, as we contemplate it, as we reflect it, it does something to you. So there's something powerful when we just start to say, God, there's no one like you. You are good, you are kind. You are gracious. You're true. Anything you can draw upon that you know to be true of Him. So right now I want to ask you, who does God say He is? Who has God shown you He is? This is your turn. I am the resurrection and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is our sufficiency. He is our protector. He is loving. He is our righteousness. He is our comforter. He is with us. He is for us. Come on, I got like four or five people engaging. There's a lot of you in the room here. He is my strength. He is faithful. He is true. He is my refuge. He is my provider. Man, I can't keep up. Alpha and Omega, my joy, my healer, my faith, our peace. He's our forgiveness, our joy. Come on, guys. He's good. He's our friend. He's our lover. He's our father. He lifts our head. He's our reason for living. He's the prince of peace. He's our what? Our solid rock, our our encourager. The beginning and the end. Our king. king. He knows the way. He is the way. The The good shepherd. shepherd. Our savior. Our Our wisdom. He is good. He is the wisest of all. All all. The all and in all the king of kings lord of our lord lord of lords guys like it doesn't end there is an infinite feast like stacy talked about there is something that happens when you come to the table that he has set that is his word that is the scriptures that is the revelation of him most clearly seen in the face of jesus christ And I would encourage you to take moments in your day. I would encourage you to take the first moments in your day, if you can, to fill your heart and your mind with these truths. Every time you speak out who he is, it's like the target is set, the bullseye before you of who you are, of who you're made to be. I got wrecked this week sitting in Isaiah 6 that starts with, in the year King Uzziah died. This great king who lost his way, we won't go into a story, but and then he saw the Lord. And it tells us that Isaiah is undone by it. And he's sent with this revelation to a people who aren't going to get it. And but it's just like stirring in my heart for us, Life Tree Church, is that we would know the beauty of our God, his goodness and his glory and all these things are speaking out. And we would stand in this city as reflections of that light. There are people lost in darkness who do not know that He is good. And we are prone to lose track, just like the elders. Do not walk away from Stacy's message and be like, those stupid elders. (laughs) 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 We are so prone to forget. That is why we must, again and again, the disciplines, the rhythms, feast on God. We're going to pray and let you go. Father, we thank you. As we sang this morning, only you can satisfy. You taste good, Father. You fill us with strength. And I ask, Lord, for eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to know you to be released to us right now in this moment. That we would walk from this place with that. Eyes that see you, ears that hear you, a heart that knows you more. that we might know you more and make you known in this city. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. At Lifetree, we are a family all about declaring and displaying Jesus to transform lives and benefit our city. If you'd like to find out more about Lifetree, you can find us online at Tree dot C-A